Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dev Raga Personal Finance, episode 43. In this episode, I thought I'd discuss a financial concept called loss aversion. What is it and how it can make or break your financial journey? If you're new to this podcast channel, the motto is quite simple. I believe in the pay yourself first concept. That is, take a set amount of your after-tax income and pay yourself first. Save it, invest it, and reinvest the dividends. Repeat these steps, automate them, and it's likely you'll end up being wealthier than you ever probably need to be, which means you can enjoy the wealth but also you'll be able to help others too. Now, before we go to the main topic, which is loss aversion, I read an article on Nine News about how some lenders are offering 40-year mortgages to first-home buyers. Now, traditionally in Australia, for the overseas listeners, mortgages are around 30 years. I think in the 80s and 90s, they used to be 25 years, but then they basically standardised it to 30-year mortgages. Now, I've discussed about the 2836 rule when buying homes and refer to episode 40 if you haven't listened to that. And in that, I discuss some of the basic principles on how much of the after tax income your mortgage um, payment should be. And I've also discussed my specific rule of not allowing your mortgage repayments to be more than 30% of your after tax income. Yes, it's a bit conservative, but it's safe and it works, in my humble opinion. Now, the article suggests that there are six lenders which are offering 40-year mortgages. Some of the lenders are actually offering it only for first-home buyers. So the ones that are offering it specifically to first-home buyers are the SEU, Teachers Mutual Bank, and Unibank. And the other three, which is Resimac, Pepper Money, and Police Credit Union, they're offering it to anyone on a case-by-case basis. Now, I can see why this might be the case. I can see the attraction for a lot of first-home buyers and the young people out there who are desperate to get into the property market. Now, for the overseas listeners, Australia has one of the most expensive property markets in the world. In recent times, it has declined, probably about 8%, but it's still very, very expensive. And young people in Australia are desperately trying to get into the property market. Now, Some of the trends about this 40-year mortgages is probably because wages haven't really risen in the recent years for young Australians. So they're still getting paid the same as probably what they were getting paid five years ago, which means due to inflation and reduction in purchasing power, the actual money doesn't travel further today in 2019 than perhaps it did in 2013 or 14. The second point is that house prices are still quite high. By extending longer mortgages, essentially you can reduce your monthly repayments, especially if you want to follow the 30% after-tax mortgage commitment rule. And thirdly, young people have time on their side. So if you're in your 20s and you want to buy a home, then a 40 year mortgage might actually make sense. But there's one little or big catch to all of this. That means the people that go with the 40-year mortgages will be paying interest for a much longer time, at least another 10 years longer, in fact. 
So that means you're paying more interest in the long run. So is it actually worth the deal? Let's use some examples here. Let's use an example of a home that you want to buy for about $500,000, which is quite modest in Australia, and that includes a 10% deposit. So your actual mortgage is around $450,000. So if you choose a 30-year mortgage at an average 4% interest rate, assume no fees, which is unlikely, but let's not complicate things. Let's just assume you go for a 30-year mortgage for a 450,000 mortgage at an average of 4% interest rate and assuming no fees, your monthly commitment mortgage repayment then becomes principal and interest of $2,148. And over 30 years, your total repayments becomes $773,413, of which the interest component is $323,413, and the principal component, of course, is the $450,000 that you purchased the home for. Now, let's rewind and go back to the same scenario, but this time we're using a 40-year mortgage, exactly the same parameters, exactly the same interest rate, and exactly the same no-fees policy. Let's see how that works out. Your monthly commitments, principal and interest, comes down from 2148 to 1881. Your total repayments, though, becomes $902,747 compared to 773413. And your interest component becomes $452,747 compared to around $323,413. And of course, the principal payments are still the same at $450,000. So your total interest extra that you paid because of the extra 10 years of your mortgage is around $129,334. And the total reduction in monthly repayments that you got as a result of that is around $267, which is not really much. So let's recap. A 30-year mortgage, you pay about $323,000 in interest. A 40-year mortgage, you pay about $452,000 in extra interest, um, and not extra interest, sorry, in total interest, and the extra interest paid is around $129,000 for the 40-year mortgage. So the question is, is it really worth it? Is a 40-year mortgage, you know, cut out to what it's, you know, promoted to be? In my personal humble opinion, I don't think so. If anything, you should aim for a 25-year mortgage if possible. So what I suggest um, is you get a 25-year mortgage if possible, um, uh, or if you want to get a 30-year mortgage, calculate the repayment for 25 years or even less and pay that amount, which kind of equates to uh, you know the same sort of thing. Whether you want to get a 25-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage, just get a 30-year mortgage, um, but calculate your repayments for that 25 years. And that'll save you loads of interest in the long run. The example I used just before, if you did that, that would save you from a 30 to a 25 year mortgage, $60,833 over the lifetime of that loan. Now coming back to the saving of $267 monthly in repayments if you chose a 40 year loan, there is one particular scenario it may actually work in your favor to get a 40 year mortgage, but you need to focus on your financial behavior, be persistent and automated. Suppose you, you took that $267 per month and invested it in the share market assume the Australian share market, and obtain a return of about 8% per annum for those 40 years on average, you will end up with $365,369.
if your expense ratio is just 0.18%, which is what it is for the Vanguard ASX 300 wholesale fund. Now, I'm using a very low expense ratio because remember, you need to have about 100K to get into the Vanguard wholesale fund. The website says 500,000. That's actually not true. You can actually ring them up and negotiate it down to $100,000. But let's go with the flow here because, of course, if you had $100,000, and why would you worry about you know having a 40-year mortgage, et cetera, et cetera? So in a sense, you've paid $129,000, $344 extra interest to the mortgage for a 40-year loan, but you got in return $365,000 because the $267 per month that you've saved by going into a 40-year mortgage rather than a 30-year mortgage, you've taken that amount and invested it in a broad diversified share market. And assuming you obtain a result of about 8% per annum in returns with an expense ratio, which is quite low, 0.18%, you're actually better off, which means you've just made a profit of $236,000 if you did the 40-year mortgage. Does that make sense? Essentially, you've done 40-year mortgage, paid more interest in the long run, but because you've saved extra money per month because of the lower mortgage repayments and you've taken that money and invested it somewhere else, had you got the 8% return with a low expense ratio, you're actually $236,000 better off. Not bad, you say, right? But can you guarantee yourself You'll be well behaved in that time frame. That's 40 years, which is a long term, and you won't waste that extra $267 per month, and you got a bonus due to a longer home loan time frame. Can you guarantee yourself that? If you can, then I say go for it. Because I can tell you the evidence is most people would not manage that level of discipline, but it's definitely possible and it's definitely doable. So coming back to the original question: is a 40-year mortgage worth it? In my humble opinion, Probably not, because most Australians probably won't be that disciplined. But technically and theoretically and mathematically, yeah, it's worth it. So if you think you can pull off that discipline over the 40 years, then I say, yeah, that would technically be possible. Now, this all leads to today's main topic of associated with behavioral finance. What is loss aversion and how it can be bad for your personal finance and investing life? We're mainly focusing on loss aversion when it comes to investing and personal finance and not in terms of general societal values. That's an important distinction. We discussed behavioral finance in episode 25, so if you haven't listened to it, go back, rewind, take your time, listen to it, and come back to this topic on this episode. Now, my podcasts are a step-by-step approach to personal finance topics and concepts, and the concepts build on one another. The first 10 episodes are fairly basic, and then we discuss a lot more about investing and debt reduction strategies and debt concepts, etc. So at the very least, you should master the first 10 episodes and know the concepts discussed in those episodes inside out, back to front, before you progress on to the further episodes. So this is a structural step-by-step podcast channel. So you need to crawl before you walk is basically what I'm trying to say. Now, loss aversion uh, aversion is when investors are so fearful of losses that they focus on trying to avoid a loss more so than making gains. This is compounded by the fact that if an investor has lost money, then they're more likely to be prone to loss aversion. So the evidence is that if you lose money, you're twice as likely to feel the pain when compared to the enjoyment you might get from making a profit. Therefore, the loss aversion ratio on average, is around two to one. So imagine that. If you had $100 and you were given the opportunity to keep the $100 and you were also given the opportunity to make another $50, which is a 50% gain, 
but there's a risk involved and there's a volatility involved that you might actually lose $50 from $100, then our brains are inherently wired, or some of our brains, to avoid losses. So we tend to just hold on to the $100 that we had rather than go for the $150. So if you go back to 2007, using that example, when the whole world collapsed, people lost so much money, which was basically putting them out of the market forever due to the fear of another crash. There are people from 2007 who've lost so much money that they won't invest in the market because they feel that they're going to lose that money. They've just been so scarred from it. This is why loss aversion can be a financially destructive concept in your personal finances. This is despite the fact that in 2007, just before the crash, the same people made so much money to the point that even today, the ASX hasn't recovered to its all-time highs back then. How can that be? Why are people so afraid of losing money? Well, this is because humans haven't evolved as quickly as we imagine ourselves to have evolved. Now, we tend to think that we're very advanced, and there are some things that we do that are very advanced, particularly when it comes to finances, etc. Technology has evolved, science is more advanced, and financial concepts are readily known and more advanced today than they were ever before, but our brain is still wired like yesteryears. We tend to avoid losses, even if it means making gains in the long run. That's just the way the basic premise of our brain function works. Another way of looking at this is when investors just sit on the sidelines and then calculate every move of the stock market. Meanwhile, their money is sitting in a cash account somewhere in the net bank, um, losing purchasing power, losing real value over the long term. They think they're being smart by trying to jump in at the right time. Now, we've talked about market timing before, and I strongly believe that time in the market is more powerful than timing the market. So these people think that they're being smart by trying to jump in and out at the right time. Meanwhile, have lost focus on the helicopter view, whereby smarter investors have simply put money in consistently over the long run, kept investing for the long term, reinvested the dividends, and ended up maintaining or even exceeding their purchasing power in the long term. Now, that just means making more money. So the irony is that by doing nothing, people lose money because they think they're being smart by doing nothing because, hey, hey, I'm not investing, I'm not saving money. Therefore, I'm not losing money, but I'm not making any money, so therefore I'm smart. This is called the status quo basis. This is another financial concept that comes across like loss aversion. And it's associated with the loss aversion concept. They are so afraid to lose money, they do absolutely nothing. And by doing absolutely nothing, they actually are losing money. Therein lies the quandrum. So what sort of situations or people are more at risk of loss aversion? So now we're delving deep into the behavioral finance concept here. Now, that really depends on your country, your culture, your ethnicity. So, for example, Australians, we have a loss aversion ratio of just 1.2, whilst Russians have a loss aversion ratio of 3.0. United States is 1.7. Thailand is 3. Romania is 3.3. India is 2.3. And in Luxembourg, it's only 0.9. That is the only country out of the 53 countries studied by Mei Wang in 2017 where you actually felt better gaining than losing. It's the opposite of what majority of the other countries experience. And it also depends on your ethnicity. Asians have a higher ratio of loss aversion ratio, which is 2.0, whilst Africans tend to have the lowest ratio, which is 1.4, whilst Anglo-Saxons generally sit at around 1.6. Why is this? 
Well, it's because if you come from a culture where there are societal safety nets, you're less likely to be loss averse. This is because you can count on social safety nets, friends, families to help you in the event of a major financial loss. Individualistic countries, I beg your pardon, many in Asia don't have as solid safety nets around. Therefore, they tend to be more conservative in their financial thinking and tend to avoid losses, even if it means it also misses out on major gains. Now, people from unequal cultures are more likely to be loss-averse as well when compared to countries where equality is a strong characteristic of their society. So Australia is a fairly equal society, despite what you read in the media. So our loss-averse ratio is only 1.2. America is more unequal, as again you read in the media, so their ratio is 1.7. What about men versus women? Now, this I found really, really interesting. I would have thought that women are more loss-averse than men. But it turns out there's actually pretty equality here. Men and women are equally loss-averse. There's no major difference, which was interesting. But in countries where where there's they, they sort of value wealth and careers more, which is you know so-called masculinity, and, and, and this is just a financial definition of what they sort of define countries uh, which value wealth and careers more is defined as more masculine culture, which has got nothing to do with gender bias, etc. So don't get me on that. Um, it's those country citizens that are more loss averse. What about power? What if you have more power? People in powerful positions tend to be less loss averse. That makes sense. If you're a wealthy industrialist who sits on the top echelons of society, losing some money here or there doesn't really affect your life, so you're less likely to be loss averse than other people. Less powerful people are more loss averse. So you'll note with power comes wealth, both are interlinked, very, very close. And lastly, what about education? Well, the more education you have, the less loss-averse you are. Makes sense. There's a great study in China which was conducted between 93 and 2004 tracking cotton farmers. And they actually, it's quite a neat study. But in summary, they noted that every year of extra education the farmers had meant they adopted a new crop which was safer, more profitable, and less risky when compared to doing nothing. So in other words, education means that you're less loss-averse than people that have less education or no education. Now, there's a third concept. We talk about status basis, um, uh, sorry, status quo basis. We've talked about loss aversion. What about the prospect theory? How does loss aversion relate to the prospect theory? Probably important to discuss that. Loss aversion is when investors fear losing money, so they focus their efforts on lot losing money rather than gaining more money. But the prospect theory is when investors tend to choose or make their financial decisions based on perceived gains rather than perceived losses. There is a subtle difference here. Let's use an example. Consider two financial advisors. Both offer the same mutual fund for you to invest in, and you're the investor. Advisor A presents the mutual fund as returning 15% on average annually over the last three years. That's a fantastic return, don't get me wrong. But Advisor B presents the same mutual fund as returning above average returns over the last 10 years but in recent 12 months has been declining. Which one will you choose? Which one will the average investor choose? They are the same mutual fund, two different advisors, but the evidence suggests that the investor is more likely to go with advisor A, that is the one that says it returns on average 15% over the last three years, 
because he or she has presented the information in such a way which had made you look at the perceived gain and also avoid the losses. This is a prospect theory and loss aversion concept bundled into one example. So there you have it, loss aversion. It can really impact your personal finances in the long run. I suggest you pay you know, respect to it. I suggest you look at what your loss aversion is. You know, a lot of people tell me you know, on a Facebook or an SMS or when we talk about finances, they say, look, I'm very conservative. I don't want to invest in the share market because I'm conservative. That's a form of loss aversion that's taken over their financial life. Along with other concepts we've discussed already, such as prospect theory and status quo basis. So let's summarize episode 43. First of all, the MSN Money article, which is from the Nine News Network, um, basically talked about the 40-year mortgages, the good, the bad, the ugly, and how you can actually benefit from it if you're a disciplined investor. Only a small number of financial institutions are currently offering this, and to be honest, I doubt it'll go mainstream, but let's see how things pan out. Point two is loss aversion. This is when investors fear losses so much they focus on avoiding losses rather than focusing on making gains. And number three, some cultures, people, ethnicities, countries are more prone to loss aversion than others. And number four, prospect theory, a behavioral finance concept which suggests losses and gains are valued differently and therefore individuals are likely to make financial decisions based on perceived gains rather than perceived losses. For example, you want to buy a stock based on the fact that you want it to rise in value. How the information is presented to the investor is the key. And number five, the status quo basis. This is when investors do nothing and don't invest, don't save money, and in the end lose money by virtue of inflation, less purchasing power. So sitting on the sidelines and not being part of the game is probably the most dangerous thing. So that's loss aversion. Um, thanks, everyone. And this is episode 33. This is Deb Raga, Person of Finance. And I appreciate your questions, subscription on CastBox, and also following my Facebook pages, the private messages. I appreciate all the support. If you have any questions or, or topics you want me to discuss, then basically PM me. I'll try my best to get onto it. I know one uh, listener has asked me to talk about REITs, which is coming up. So that's something I'm working on. just takes a bit of time. I've just been really busy with work at the moment. Uh, now, just remember, I'm not a financial advisor, so make sure you get a proper advisor if you want proper advice. My podcasts are all about financial concepts and principles which you can use in your own life, and I hope you're learning just like I am. Till next time, stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 